All right. Let's go ahead and bring it in. This week as we wrap up our Word and Spirit series, this series has been a real gift and it's gonna stick out to me in my memory within the life of our church as a time where God gave a lot of gifts and encouraged us and met with us. And we're wrapping things up today, but I do wanna say that today is not the end of Word and Spirit. It's a season where we focused on it, but this is a part of who we are. So God, we pray that you would make that true. We thank you for the way that you've encountered people through these seasons, through the renewal nights, through our interactions in our homes and one-on-one, and the way you've taught us to listen to you, to listen to your word, to listen to the guiding of the Spirit. And we pray that you would just take us deeper. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, since we've been talking about the word and spirit, I want to bring you into some of the ways that I engage God throughout the day, a practice I have of turning Daily Park, my local park, into a sanctuary where I'm with God. So I, I like to take the park and the different ways that it engages my senses, the, the different places that are formed within the park and have different ways of encountering God in those places. One of the things I do, usually one of the things I start with, I start with playing basketball. Playing basketball with God. You're like, oh, that sounds cheesy. But you will regret the laugh. <laughs> it is one of the most meaningful things. Because when I grew up, what I really wanted was to play basketball with my dad. And that never got to happen. But as I became a believer and looked back on my life, the basketball court became like emblematic of meeting with the father. So I start off every morning in the presence of the father, playing basketball and letting him be my father and be in his presence. One of the other things I do, this is where it gets really weird, is I like to confess my sin, but confess my sin over by a dumpster. Because there's nothing like the smell of decay and the, the fragrances that are coming out of that dumpster to remind you of how messed up sin is and all that God has <clears throat> forgiven us and cleansed us from. One of my favorite things is I like to take a hammock and put it up in this carob tree in the park and just sit in the, and rest in God's presence. I'll often read scripture I'll read a few chapters and then just pray in response. Most of the time, I'll just doze off and fall asleep because I'm so at rest. Daily Park is this sacred place, this sanctuary where I can just wander around and get lost in the presence of God and not even have to worry about anything else. Until one day, last spring, I was in my hammock. I had fallen asleep. I was asleep for about 10 minutes and I woke up and I could just sense that there was a presence around me. You ever had one of those moments? And I thought I was having like a Josh Butler moment and maybe I was meeting with an angel or something like that. <laughs> but I look, I look out of one eye, still pretending to be asleep, and it turns out it wasn't an angel. It was a middle-aged woman just staring at me. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how do I strike up a conversation, this is awkward, what is she doing? And before I could even say anything, she picks up her phone, takes a picture of me. And before I could even get a word out, she walks off 
and she, hang, she connects with her friend who's with her, and I start eavesdropping in on the conversation, and it becomes very evident that they are working on something that is gauging homelessness in Tempe, either like a paper <laughs> or some sort of study. And, and I've become figure 2.1 in whatever they're about to produce. And at first I, I was like, well, you feel like you could just walk up and take a picture of anybody? And I was, I was a little confused. But then come to think of it, I don't blame them. They saw a grown man wandering around the park. If they were there multiple days, they thought I was wearing the same black shirt every day. <laughs> I'm looking in the dumpster. I'm like sleeping in the tree. It makes sense. It makes sense. Why would she assume that this was the sanctuary where I had come to pray and to be with Jesus? Especially since in our Western context and with all of the influences we have, we have been conditioned to think that there are sacred places and secular places, places for God and places for everything else. Why would she think that this is a place where I've come to meet with God? But throughout the biblical story, you see the constant invitation to see all of life as a sanctuary where we encounter the word and the spirit, if we have eyes to see. That it's not just my park, but the presence of the word and spirit can transform laundry rooms into a sanctuary where we encounter the God who makes all things new. Chemistry labs where we encounter the intricacies of his design as he, and what he created in the world. Drives to work as sacred pilgrimages where we are in the presence of God. Mowing the lawn as a way of cultivating the holy ground where God is present. If we have eyes to see, all of life can be a sanctuary where we encounter the word and spirit. So with that said, let's let the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 4, be one who teaches us how to see life as a sanctuary and how to see the practices that we're engaging in the right way. So go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 1. It says, now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Intense words. He's saying that there are going to be people who are led away from the faith by these teachers, these false teachers who have a seared conscience, and they are demonic and deceitful. Their teaching doesn't come from them. It's influenced by demons. And Paul has this intense, harsh critique. What could they possibly have been teaching to get the Apostle Paul to say that you are deceitful and you are demonic? Are they adding a fourth member to the Trinity? Are they promoting Ouija boards? Are they experimenting with gluten-free communion? Like, what could they be doing that gets Paul so upset? Here's what he says, verse three. They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from certain foods 
that God created to be received with thanksgiving. That they had this mindset. There was this group of people who had this mindset that said, if you want to be right with God, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to be the right kind of Christian, then we're going to say you can't get married and you're sort of your sacrifice will make God really happy. And that there's certain foods that if you eat those foods and not other foods, then you, you will be right with God. Now you may be thinking, like I thought, why is Paul so upset? Yeah, maybe this is a little extreme, but why is it so bad? And after all, didn't Paul practice these very things? Paul committed his life to singleness, for the sake of ministry, as he's following Jesus, who was single. They both practice fasting, which is the extremest form of abstaining from food. Why is he so upset? It's not because of the practices, but it's because of how they are viewing the practices. And it's this word, require. These teachers were treating these practices as if they were mandatory for satisfying God. That if you want to be really close to God, you have to do the new fad that they're promoting with their sacred diet and their sacred singleness. They're shifting attention away from God and shifting it toward these particular practices. They're promoting life with God through good works rather than faith, and that these good works are merely a ways of worshiping God, of encountering God. Do we do this? I mean... Not the vegan keto thing, but like we do this in other areas of life. We, I was talking with John Crawford this week. We were praying about some things and he really felt burdened that like the proliferation of spiritual formation books out there right now, that they are really good, really good. And when we are giving out materials that talk about different spiritual formation practices like Sabbath and Lectio Divina and fasting and rule of life, that these are gifts that these are things that can be used, but we can end up approaching them with a mindset that views them the same way that these false teachers were, that we can prioritize practices over the presence of God, practices over the person with Jesus, and put the practices at the center. We can view them like it's some Christian video game where you're like leveling up with like you do fasting and the rule of life and then all these sorts of things as you get closer to God. Or like a currency that pays God off that says, okay, I've read my Bible for 30 minutes. Can you not be mad at me for a day or two? Or like a self-help technique that's all just about your own improvement but has nothing to do with God. When we elevate practices over presence, we end up with an exhausted life with a list of Christian chores. But when presence, with being with God, is at the center, then the practices find their right place. And then it's abundant life where these practices are a vehicle that bring us closer to God, but they are not the destination. They are vehicles, not the destination. Many of us are going to get in vehicles this week. You're going to get in a plane or a car, and you're going to go visit somebody for Thanksgiving I remember when I was 19 and I got in a vehicle or I didn't have a vehicle because when I was younger, when I was 19, I was like generous but dumb and I just like gave away my car one day but then realized I needed my car for stuff, which often put a burden on other people. Um, 
And my mom wanted nothing more than to have a Thanksgiving meal with her boys in Albuquerque. And I wanted to be with her because she can cook, right? <laughs> so she decided, even though she didn't have a lot of money, to buy a bus ticket for me to go to Albuquerque. And so if you know anything about the Greyhound bus, it's a fascinating, fun experience, but 12 hours it took us to get there. And uh, it was a sweet time. My mom welcomed me. We had a great meal. It was a feast. It was a memory. The vehicle was not the point. It was the destination to be at the table in the presence of my mom and my family. And with our, our spiritual disciplines, it's not about the vehicle, it's about the destination that brings us to the table. How ridiculous would it have been if I would have taken that bus 12 hours and just popped out of the bus and said, look what I did for you, mom. I'm a good son, right? I showed up, I took a 12-hour bus trip just to be with you, and then just got in the bus and went back and missed the feast altogether. This is often how we are treating our spiritual disciplines, our practices, we're not treating them as the vehicle that they are. It's not about the vehicle, it's about the table. It's not about the practices, it's about the presence. Paul was engaged in those same practices, but it was because Jesus was at the center and that was what was most important. Well, Paul has a second problem with these teachers, a second issue, and I think he's probably even more angry about this one. The problem is that they split the world into two. They split the world into spiritual things and physical things. Saying the spiritual things, that's what really matters, and the so-called physical things, they don't matter. That things like teeth and soil and tools, you may need them to survive, but they don't matter. They're neutral at best. And that you, your aim of life should be to just do more of the spiritual and less of the physical. But Paul doesn't see that false dichotomy. He actually sees that as a lie, that it has nothing to do with the biblical story, that it was probably influenced by a whole history of Greek thought that I don't have time to get into now, but we'll probably do a podcast later. And it's affecting us today, too, that we view things like morning quiet time and Bible study and singing worship songs as holy. And they are. We don't devalue those things. But we all, what we do is elevate the value of other things, like spreadsheets and doing dishes and mowing the lawn and studying for a test, how those could be the very moment, the very place where you meet with Jesus. He is present there as well. And why is this such a bad teaching, a bad heresy? Why is it demonic? Because if those teachers are true, then it says that 95% of your life is meaningless and cut off from God. Think about it. If Satan can't convince you that God isn't real, the next best strategy is to convince you that he isn't present in the vast majority of your life. Maybe he'll concede 5%, but if he can steal that 95 and say God's not there, that is demonic. And Paul goes after this. In verse four, he says, for everything created by God is good, not neutral, not okay, good, because he created it. And nothing 
if it is to be rejected, if it's received with thanksgiving. This is him reminding them of the first chapters of the Bible when God audits his creation with plants and animals and declares over everything he's made that it is good. And if it is good, then who are we to say otherwise? But we're called to experience it and enjoy his good gifts and to respond by saying thank you. But Paul takes this further, that it's not just good, but that all of life, all aspects of life, including marriage and food and uh, recreation and all these sorts of things are a place where we can encounter the word and spirit. He says in verse five, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. At first glance, that this may seem like some sort of superstitious thing where if you just like read a Bible verse, suddenly something's made holy. But really what this is about, it's probably looking back to the Jewish practice of reading scripture and praying during marriage ceremonies and at meals. And, and what this was about was acknowledging the presence of God in these spaces. That God is here. That God is present and that if we have all of, if we have eyes to see, that all of life can be this sacred space where we encounter God. What does this look like? It means that all places are a sanctuary. Jesus, as he's walking around, he's not just meeting with people in temples, but he's meeting with them in boats and weddings and out in the fields turning those places into a sacred sanctuary. And for us, it's not just about Easter morning, but the light rail at 3.47 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon is just as sacred of a place. All emotions. You see in the Psalms, the cries to, that God, I eat my tears at night. God, I wanna bash the teeth out of my enemies. Bringing the raw emotion to God. Not just sanitizing it, and then coming to God when the emotion's dealt with, but bringing the emotion to God and letting each emotion be like a sacred sanctuary where we encounter his presence. All of our senses, not just ears that listen to sermons, but the smell of citrus blossoms and the taste of brisket as sacred sanctuary, sanctuary to encounter God, aligning with the whole witness of the Old and New Testament, which engage our senses in worship as we taste communion, feel the waters of baptism, see the grandeur and the architecture of the temple. All places, all invitations, or all, all emotions, all senses, there's, there's an invitation to encounter God in these places. And so what we want to do is we want to take some time now and actually pause and actually have a moment where we're going to bring a panel up and talk about how do we flesh this out in our actual lives? How do we live this out day to day and see if we can transform all of life by the word and spirit into a sacred temple? So I'm gonna ask Michelle and Carrie to come up and I'm gonna have you do a discussion question. Yeah. While, while they're coming up, um, let's do this. This was the question I asked you before. Here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, here's the, the place where I do encounter God the most outside of church-related programs. So go ahead and, and discuss that. Where do you encounter God outside of church-related stuff? 
and I'll bring us back in just a moment. Let's go ahead and bring it in. Um, all right, so here, I want to start off with this. We are about to name a bunch of different ways that you can connect with God. Do not do all of them. It's going to be a lot. What we're hoping to do is just stir your imagination to think about your own life. Maybe there's one or two things that are helpful to you up here, but maybe it sparks something about your own life to help see it as a place to encounter Jesus. So we're going to kind of talk through each of these, that all of life, uh, all places, all senses, all emotions are a way to encounter God. And want to introduce you to Michelle and Carrie. You've seen them up here before. These are two people who have taught me a lot about Jesus and a lot about prayer. And I think instead of just me rambling about dumpsters, it's, impo <laughs> it's important that you hear from them. So Carrie, would you start us off? I bet that there's some people who are thinking like, do I gotta go, go dumpster diving to be with Jesus? Is there just some simple on-ramp that I haven't really been spending time with God? Where's like a good starting place? What would you say? I think a really simple starting place would be probably the book of Psalms. Mm. And it's, you can really take one Psalm a day and mm. just start there, read pray through it, it's laid out really well. Like it, I mean, they're, they're digestible chunks of scripture, right? They're usually 20-ish mm. verses. And I think that's a really easy way if you don't know where to start yeah. to do, yeah. That's good, that's good. Michelle, I know that people are probably thinking, um, I want to figure out what it looks like to organize my life in a way that is, you know, focused on the presence of Jesus. What wisdom, you're a wise man, uh, what wisdom would you have for the people in our community? Um, the first one. Now you can hear me, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first one is, right, most people have to drive somewhere or some sort of commute. And the one-on-one entry-level that you don't need a placement test, is just listen to the podcast, um, Go In Peace, that we have. That's a very, you know, it's always based on the, on the verse for the week, and it's an easy way for you to pray through that scripture. Um, and then just, like, look, like, think through your day. We all have routines. We all have things that we do every day, things that already, you know, you don't, like, you, you take the trash out, you walk the dog. In our case, um, I think our dog is holy because... She's been in more prayer meetings than any other <laughs> dog I know. Um, because our morning walk, uh, we, we take the dog out for a morning walk every day. And that's the time that we prayer walk and we talk about the day, pray for the day, pray for things that are happening. So we just basically like we hijacked our prayer walk, I mean our dog walk, turned that into a prayer walk. 
So just think of things that you already do and think of ways that you can like turn that into a moment to pray. And, you know, people are very busy. Lives are very busy. Most people live off a schedule, some sort of reminder alarm. I have an alarm on my watch, on my phone. But if you have a schedule, maybe just a simple thing would be to schedule a time where you take some time between emails or a transition time to pray for the people you've been emailing or, or talking to that day. Just, again, looking through the things that you do in a normal day and how you can engage God through that. Uh, if you work with someone or you know people who are smokers, you know smokers are very committed, right? Mm -hmm. It can be 120 degrees outside in the summer, and they'll go and sit outside because they have to smoke so many feet away from the building. So they will be out there in the sun smoking. They're very committed. So imagine if we did the same, if we had that level of commitment <laughs> to carving time to you know, engage with Jesus, engage in prayer, by think of like, you know, throughout the day, like, you know, that would be a great thing to tell your boss. Hey, the smokers get the break. I need my break too, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, just like to have that time, to, to spend time with God and turn that into a prayer time. So, yeah, just, just think through the things. Like, even like for us, when we're driving down the, the freeway sometimes with, with our family, if we hear an ambulance go by or if we pass an accident, you know, we often pray for, for the accident or for the emergency, emergency and the people that are there. So just like being... Like, think of all the things you do and how you can bring them in the presence of God and help you connect with the presence of God. Yeah. So, Kerry, he mentioned the calendar. Yeah. But sometimes we do not have control over our calendar. There's uh, kids, you know, sick parents, you know, people that we are taking care of that we have responsibility for where they can't just be in the other room putting Legos in their nose while you're... Um, yeah. What do we do with that? That's a reality. Yeah. I believed the lie I had control over my calendar until I had my first child. Mm. And that quickly went out the door. And so at one point, we had a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a three, two, one-year-old. And so, yeah, mm. phew. Um, and so when I looked at kind of the formational practices that were being offered to me, mm. that I was learning, it was, you know, spend an hour of quiet time in the morning, I should be you know, using Greek, and I should be exegeting scripture and cross-referencing. And, and I looked at that, and I went, there is just no possible way this mm. was going to happen. Within seven seconds of sitting down, someone's coming out, and they're interrupting me. Yeah, because there's a Lego somewhere it shouldn't be, <laughs> or someone's crying for some reason. Um, but I really recognized, I became really discouraged, because it felt like... My kids were getting in the way of my time with Jesus. Mm. When they came out, I would yell at them, I'm spending time with Jesus. Get back into bed. Mm. So <laughs> I'm not totally sure that delighted the Lord in the way I responded to them, but there it was. And so I think, though, as the, the more that I read Scripture and I saw a significant amount of Jesus' ministry was in the interruptions. Mm. It was the guy getting lowered through the roof. And, or it was the blind beggar yelling Jesus' name. Mm. It was kids coming to Jesus and constantly interrupting him. And he engaged in that as if it were, he was redeeming those interruptions. Mm. And so in those moments where I was, there was, I was physically being interrupted, setting, that, setting my mind to prayer of, Lord, how do I redeem this interruption? Mm. And that really changed the way I looked at interruptions. Rather than becoming bitter and resentful, I saw them more as opportunities to be more like Jesus. 
Um, I think the other way is that we're all busy, and I don't know about you guys, but I can spend about 14 seconds in prayer before I'm thinking about the things I need to be emailing and the things I need to get to the grocery store, and don't forget to turn in that, and, and on and on, and I would, again, get very discouraged. Um, but what I started doing is putting a little piece of paper next to me while I was praying or spending time in Scripture, and I would just write those things down. Text Jim or pick up eggs at the grocery store, whatever. I would have, it's probably 10 to 15 things every morning. Mm -hmm. But then that becomes my prayer list throughout the course of the day, mm. right? Pray a little prayer for that person or this grocery store or this situation. So again, I'm trying to redeem those interrupt interruptions rather than allowing them to build up bitterness and resentment in me. Mm. That's good, that's good. So you've spoken about the home. I think it's also important to think about work, like how we encounter the word and spirit in our work lives. We spend a lot of our life in, in work. Um, the Benedictine monks, they had this saying, it was ora et labora, which means to work and pray. And they were constantly finding ways to weave rhythms of prayer throughout their work day. And they were some of the most productive, fruitful workers, but they also had carved out uh, these encounters with God throughout the day. And the first person I saw model this was actually Michelle. Michelle and I go way back 20 plus years ago in Turkey. I saw him pull out this little index card that looked mangled index card um, that he would carry around with him. And just wherever he saw God was doing something or answering a prayer, he would write it down. Wherever he felt like there was something he needed to be prayed for, that God was pressing on him, he would write it down. And then the in-between spaces would just return to that card and return to the presence of Jesus. And that has always stuck with me. I think there's also something to be said about the way we engage Scripture. That when we engage Scripture, we often think of the question, how does this apply to my interpersonal relationships or with my family or with my friends? But often we don't ask the question, how does this apply? What are the implications for my work life? And there was a couple years ago, I was a friend with the owner of a restaurant, doesn't know Jesus, but he, kept, he wanted to hire people from Redemption Tempe. He said, they do really good work. I'm a little confused because in the past, I didn't want to hire Christians because they just wanted to start Bible studies and not do any of the work uh, <laughs> at the work. And so he said, what, what's the difference? And I said, well, let me read something to you, uh, and you tell me if this feels like it would fit on a, as, a, on a, as a good employee or a good job description. All right, so patience, kindness, not envying people or boasting, but honoring others, not being self-seeking, not being easily angered or keeping record of wrongs, delighting in the good stuff and uh, not in evil stuff, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering. He's like, if you know somebody like that, I must meet them. And what I told him is I said, look, I just read you 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding verse. <laughs> and um, the, the very Bible that you're downplaying, this is the type of stuff that's in there. And we're just kind of talking, but why don't Christians read that and think, this is what I do at work? It's the simple practice of asking that question as you're engaging scripture. How does, what are the implications for my work life? as I read this text. So let's move from places to emotions. Uh, we encounter God. We can encounter him through the emotions. 
Michelle, get us started with that. What's an emotion that you tend to have that is a, a sanctuary where you encounter God? I think um, longing, um, like wanting something, is an easy way for us to discover what we're longing for. If you look at your Facebook ads, or if you look at your Amazon uh, page, what they're suggesting, basically, I feel like we have uh, desire-seeking devices around us all the time that are listening and, and you know, giving you ads that are you know, straight to what you think you want the most. And if you look at my Facebook, you're going to see a lot of stuff about mountain bikes and cycling and cycling jerseys. And you think that's all I want in life. You know, I, I do want to be out on the mountains riding my bike. But if, if we take the time to look at the things we, we desire and, and dig, do some digging, we'll see that what about being in, you know, doing this thing or wanting this thing that really points me back to God? So for me, like being out in nature, being out exercising is the way I connect with God the most. So it's really like what I'm really longing for is like that sense of rest and connection with God that I, I can only find in Him. And we see that in Psalm 63. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So there's this sense of like, you know, David is in the midst of the desert, probably fleeing from some enemies. And instead of like his desire is not to have revenge on his enemies, but he's actually longing for God. So I think the challenge for us is most of the time we're too quick to address our desire or longing with something like, you know, that immediate buy something, you know, Amazon makes it easy, or, you know, your phone look for something. When we sit with our desires and actually do some praying through that, we'll find God waiting for us at the end of it, and we realize that that is the only one that can satisfy our, our soul. Mm. And that's what it says in verse 5, that he, God satisfies his soul. That's good. Carrie, what about things we enjoy, like that we like, that, that we just look at and say, wow, that's amazing. We tend to think like, ah, uh, you, you got to come to God with the boring stuff, but not the stuff that you really enjoy, like a dunk in a basketball or a brisket or something. What do you do with a sense of wonder? Yeah, I love this one because I think as adults, we have so, like, science has gotten us to a place where we understand how a lot of nature works. And so I think we very easily kind of run past nature because we go, oh, yeah, I understand how the clouds work and how rain works and how... But I was reading in Psalm 65 the other day, and it says that uh, the hills are girding themselves with joy. Mm. So as I'm driving down 60, uh, there's you know, little hills on the side, and I just smiled ear to ear thinking, how are you girding yourself with joy? Mm. And engaging and allowing myself to go, gosh, how does it work? Hmm. What is, you know, and I think, so one way that God kind of made this very clear to me about three months ago, I had a random thing growing in my garden. Hmm. Garden, I don't, let's not use the word garden. Hmm. <laughs> in my yard, randomly. And um, it was, I had a, I knew that it did not look like a weed, but that's all I knew. Mm. I even took a clipping of it and brought it in, and I said, Michelle, what is this? And he didn't know. We didn't know. But I really had a sense of, there's something that's going to come from this, and it's going to be slow, mm. but it's going to be good. Mm. So I just let it grow. Three months later, I would go out maybe once a week and kind of look at it and just wonder, like, what's God doing with this thing? So anyway, about three weeks ago, I went out there, and I have four cantaloupe growing mm. in my yard. 
that I did not plan. <laughs> and so uh, what I surmise was that my dog digested the seeds, planted the seeds and fertilized the seeds <laughs> all at the same time. And so every time, I, I mean, I literally did nothing mm. to make these things grow. And so now when I go out and look at those cantaloupes, I just smile because I go, God did that whole process. Mm. He did it, and I wasn't a part of it. And it yes. was slow, but it was good. And so I think we sometimes think God's up there kind of with folded arms, like, oh, don't, I don't want you to enjoy my creation. I don't want you to equate the things that are out there with me as a good creator. Mm. But he is. He's ordered, and he's creative, and he wants us to engage in it with a sense of wonder, I think. Mm, that was yeah. good. You prayed God provide my daily bread, and he said, here's some cantaloupes. Throw some... And a dog, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one of the ones that, that I have the hardest time bringing to God is anger. Like a lot of times we think we can bring our emotions, but anger, God can't handle that. Um, and, and last year started really pressing into that, taking the Psalms seriously. And one practice that we engaged in uh, was uh, to go to a rage room. Who's been to a rage room? Yeah? It's where you take a baseball bat and you, uh, they give you some dishes and stuff and you just break it and you just take out your anger on things. Well, that was fun. But I wondered what it would look like to actually engage with God through that practice. So I kind of wrote this whole liturgy. If you want to email me, I'll send it to you, of uh, writing out the broken things of the world, the things that are just not the way they should be, and then just smacking those things with baseball bats as an embodied prayer of, God, would you do this to these things? And one of the things that hit me that I wasn't prepared for is they gave us all these beer bottles, and I'm lining them up, and what's coming to mind is all the ways in which my family has been hurt through alcohol and addiction and those sorts of things. And so I'm writing the years that felt like they were lost uh, on these bottles. I'm writing the certain relationships that were broken and the ever, different types of pain that were there. And as I'm hitting these things with the baseball bat and, and coming with a posture of anger and bringing it to God, I start weeping, realizing that behind my anger is actually some deep sadness and that God was meeting me in that moment you know, reminding me of the day that he's going to wipe the tears away and that all of those things that are being shattered by the baseball bat, he is ultimately going to shatter with his redemption. And, and re re being reminded that I don't need to hide this anger from God. I don't need to vent about it on social media. I need to bring it to him and let him deal with it. So let's pivot over to senses that God can, he's given us our senses and they're not just to help us enjoy some brisket, although that's a good part of it, but it's to enjoy him through the senses, through the brisket. Um, Carrie, let's start with you. How do we use the gift of sight as a sanctuary to encounter God? Yeah, I think the gift of sight is one that we can pretty easily take for granted. Like I said, with wonder, our, most of the time we're in our cars, and so we're passing through God's creation at 70 miles an hour, we're, we're thinking about the place that we're going, not, not how it is that we're getting there. And so one of the things, I'm horrible at this, but I've, so I've had to really make it a habit of, for example, just slowing myself down 
in moments, right? Like allowing there to be a five-minute moment where I engage with the Lord with my sight. So when I'm bringing my kids to the orthodontist, I'll try and get there just five minutes early. They can go check themselves in, and I'll just make one lap around the parking lot and just take time to see like the little things that we miss when we're in a car. And so, you know, maybe there's a trail of ants that is making its way to a dropped ice cream cone. Mm. And allowing myself to just take a second and go, this is the Lord's doing that he gives them the ability to find the food and then leave these, they're called like trail pheromones behind Mm. it so the other ants can find it. And it's just this miraculous thing if we allow ourselves to slow down and see see Mm. what God's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle. Speak to like tactile, to touch. Like how do, how, how do we feel the world and then encounter God? Okay, so uh, maybe you're going to think I'm really strange, but I'm obsessed with textures and patterns. I went through a season of taking pictures. My wife can testify to that. I went through a season of just taking pictures of textures and rocks. And, you know, in Arizona, it's full of, full of textures. And you learn very quickly what you should not touch here <laughs> and what, you know, what you can touch. But even like, you know, you see the spatters and everything, but even like the sense of touching it and, and like, and that's part of the wonder of like God has created these textures and you can feel those textures. And I feel like there's something even deeper in us as, as kids, like, like to rub on like a little blanket or something or, you know, touching a soft skin or there's this way to engage with God even through your senses. And I, you know, in Arizona, I feel like a must do here is when you see a saguaro, you got to try to put your finger right between the the thorns, and then mm-hmm. touch the, the, the saguaro. Anyway, I just find that an amazing way that you can connect with God, even through your sense of touch, and how so many of those things, to me, are the equivalent of looking to the, to the stars and seeing God's wonder, but in something much smaller that I can actually feel it. Yeah, that's really good. You know, I'm going to close this out with the, the sense of taste. I've got some experience tasting things. So um, one thing that I do... Uh, that I've started doing over the last month or so. Um, there's a, I, I feel like I have heard Brent's laugh. Brent, are you around in here? here yeah. All right. So he challenged me a few weeks ago about uh, overworking and maybe trying to do God's job and not trusting God in that. And so as a way of reminding myself that I'm not to do God's job, every Sunday I've been grilling myself a steak as a uh, perpetual retirement party that I would do every week to retire from trying to be God. And I'll, I'll, I'll taste the steak, the, probably a ribeye. I splurge on the ribeye. Uh, and just remind myself with those taste buds that I am not God and that he is. So I want to encourage you, gauge your senses, engage the emotions, engage every aspect of life and look at your life with wonder in a way of, of, of saying, how can this be a sanctuary where we connect with God? So right now, what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna come to the table and take communion. And this is fitting because this is the very gift that Jesus gave us, this practice that Jesus gave us that we've been doing throughout church history and in all places globally that's consistent from church to church as we take communion. We engage our taste buds and our sense of smell and these things in the, in the worship of God. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that moment. 
when Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, says he took the bread and that he gave thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that Jesus gave us our taste buds and then he gave us bread and wine to point to what he was gonna do on the cross so that we could remember him. So as you come forward and you take the bread now, remember that Jesus took this element of baked wheat, this simple grain to remind us that his body was bruised and broken to show us the love and the glory of God. As you dip it into the wine or the juice, recognize with your sight the redness and let it remind you of the blood of Christ that was poured out so that we could be welcomed to his family. God, we thank you for the many gifts you've given us. Help us to see them as ways that we can love you and not love the gifts more than you. And in this time of communion, we pray that we would sing and pray and taste that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.